Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales, week two of Nikolai Gogol. Uh, we are going to have The Cloak. We are going to have Memoirs of a Madman. We're going to have The Nose. We are going to have some other stuff in there. We're going to have, uh, let's see, what's that other one? I got to scan through my notes here. Uh, uh, Inspector General. We're going to break that up throughout the week. So you're going to hear a uh, play of Inspector General throughout the week. And you know what? None of this could be possible without our friends over at bunnyslippers.com. Get yourself some Highland Cow slippers. They are, I'm recording my living room right now. Actually, technically, I think I'm in the kitchen. But I'm on linoleum floors and my feet are nice and warm. Why? Because I've got some woolly, woolly Highland Cow slippers. And oh man, do they keep my feet warm. And I look cool because I'm wearing my Bad News Bears three-quarter length sleeve because it's kind of chilly in here. You know, not, not cold enough that I need to put a sweater on, but then I've got a three-quarter length sleeve shirt on and a hoodie. Yeah, I've got a hoodie on. I've got a Black Clock Audio Tales hoodie on from our shop over at pgttcm.com. So, you know, found item clothing, Black Clock Audio Tales, pgttcm.com, shop at the places that support us and support us by shopping at our store. If you want to support us, you can go to Facebook, you can go to Twitter, you can go to Instagram, you can go to any place that you find podcasts and rate and review us. Let people know, because honestly, that helps. And you know what? I've had other people pretty much vandalize <laughs> vandalize uh uh, my uh, iTunes because they had problems with me that were totally unrelated to the podcast because I didn't want to review a book or because I uh, like an asshole uh, I'm, I'm sorry a jerk uh, posted some email that was like them trying to be cool and being like how I should have them on my show and it's like that's not what kind of podcast this is I don't just have writers who write fiction and horror come on the show but hey if you know stuff if you look at our schedule and you see something that you want to talk about contact me on facebook or instagram and i'll get you on the show and you know what that's the best way to find us and help out the show by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm here we go with some google all right the Nose by Nikolai Gogol Translated by Claude Field Recording by Philip Cryan in St. Paul, Minnesota The Nose 1. On the 25th of March, a very strange occurrence took place in St. Petersburg. On the Ascension Avenue, there lived a barber of the name of Ivan Yakovlevich. He had lost his family name, and on his signboard, on which was depicted the head of a gentleman with one cheek soaped, the only inscription to be read was, Bloodletting done here. On this particular morning, he awoke pretty early. Becoming aware of the smell of fresh-baked bread, he sat up a little in bed and saw his wife, who had a special partiality for coffee, in the act of taking some fresh-baked bread out of the oven. Today 
Praskovnya Osipovna, he said, I do not want any coffee. I should like a fresh loaf with onions. The blockhead may eat bread only as far as I am concerned, said his wife to herself. Then I shall have a chance of getting some coffee. And she threw a loaf on the table. For the sake of propriety, Ivan Yakovlevich drew a coat over his shirt, sat down at the table, shook out some salt for himself, prepared two onions, assumed a serious expression, and began to cut the bread. After he had cut the loaf in two halves, he looked, and to his great astonishment saw something whitish sticking in it. He carefully poked round it with his knife and felt it with his finger. Quite firmly fixed, he murmured in his beard. What can it be? He put in his finger and drew out a nose. Ivan Yakovlevich at first let his hands fall from sheer astonishment. Then he rubbed his eyes and began to feel it. A nose, an actual nose, and moreover it seemed to be the nose of an acquaintance. Alarm and terror were depicted in Ivan's face, but these feelings were slight in comparison with the disgust which took possession of his wife. Whose nose have you cut off, you monster? She screamed, her face red with anger. You scoundrel, you tippler! I myself will report you to the police. Such a rascal, many customers have told me that while you were shaving them, you held them so tight by the nose that they could hardly sit still. But Ivan Yakovlevich was more dead than alive. He saw at once that this nose could belong to no other than Kovalov, a member of the municipal committee whom he shaved every Sunday and Wednesday. Stop, Prokosnya, Osipovna. I will wrap it in a piece of cloth and place it in the corner. There it may remain for the present. Later on, I will take it away. No, not there. Shall I endure an amputated nose in my room? You understand nothing except how to strop a razor. You know nothing of the duties and obligations of a respectable man, you vagabond, you good-for-nothing. Am I to undertake all responsibility for you at the police office? Oh, you soap smearer, you blockhead. Take it away where you like, but don't let it stay under my eyes. Ivan Yakovlevich stood there flabbergasted. He thought and thought and knew not what he thought. The devil knows how that happened, he said at last, scratching his head behind his ear. Whether I came home drunk last night or not, I really don't know. But in all probability, this is a quite extraordinary occurrence, for a loaf is something baked and a nose is something different. I don't understand the matter at all. And Ivan Yakovlevich was silent. The thought that the police might find him in unlawful possession of a nose and arrest him robbed him of all presence of mind. Already he began to have visions of a red collar with silver braid and of a sword, and he trembled all over. At last he finished dressing himself, and to the accompaniment of the emphatic exhortations of his spouse, he wrapped up the nose in a cloth and issued into the street. He intended to lose it somewhere, either at somebody's door or in a public square or in a narrow alley. But just then, in order to complete his bad luck, he was met by an acquaintance who showered inquiries upon him. Hello, Ivan Yakovlevich. Whom are you going to shave so early in the morning? etc., so that he could find no suitable opportunity to do what he wanted. Later on, he did let the nose drop, but a sentry bore down upon him with his halberd and said, Look out, you've let something drop. 
and Ivan Yakovlevich was obliged to pick it up and put it in his pocket. A feeling of despair began to take possession of him, all the more as the streets became more thronged and the merchants began to open their shops. At last, he resolved to go to the Isaac Bridge, where perhaps he might succeed in throwing it into the Neva. But my conscience is a little uneasy that I have not yet given any detailed information about Ivan Yakovlevich, an estimable man in many ways. Like every honest Russian tradesman, Ivan Yakovlevich was a terrible drunkard, and although he shaved other people's faces every day, his own was always unshaved. His coat, he never wore an overcoat, was quite mottled, that is, it had been black, but become brownish-yellow. The collar was quite shiny, and instead of the three buttons, only the threads by which they had been fastened were to be seen. Ivan Yakovlevich was a great cynic, and when Kovalov, the member of the municipal committee, said to him, as was his custom while being shaved, Your hands always smell, Ivan Yakovlevich. The latter answered, What do they smell of? I don't know, my friend, but they smell very strong. Ivan Yakovlevich, after taking a pinch of snuff, would then, by way of reprisal, set to work to soap him on the cheek, the upper lip, behind the ears, on the chin, and everywhere. This worthy man now stood on the Isaac Bridge. At first he looked round him, then he leant on the railings of the bridge, as though he wished to look down and see how many fish were swimming past, and secretly through the nose, wrapped in a little piece of cloth, into the water. He felt as though a ton weight had been lifted off him, and laughed cheerfully. Instead, however, of going to shave any officials, he turned his steps to a building, the signboard of which bore the legend, Teas served here, in order to have a glass of punch, when suddenly he perceived at the other end of the bridge a police inspector of imposing exterior, with long whiskers, three-cornered hat, and sword hanging at his side. He nearly fainted. But the police inspector beckoned to him with his hand and said, Come here, my dear sir. Ivan Yakovlevich, knowing how a gentleman should behave, took his hat off quickly, went towards the police inspector and said, I hope you are in the best of health. Never mind my health. Tell me, my friend, why you were standing on the bridge. By heaven gracious, sir, I was on the way to my customers and only looked down to see if the river was flowing quickly. That is a lie. You won't get out of it like that. Confess the truth. I am willing to shave your grace two or even three times a week gratis, answered Ivan Yakovlevich. No, my friend, don't put yourself out. Three barbers are busy with me already, and reckon it a high honor that I let them show me their skill. Now then, out with it. What were you doing there? Ivan Yakovlevich grew pale, but here the strange episode vanishes in mist, and what further happened is not known. 2. Kovalov, the member of the municipal committee, awoke fairly early that morning and made a droning noise, burr, burr, through his lips, as he always did, though he could not say why. He stretched himself and told his valet to give him a little mirror which was on the table. He wished to look at the heat boil, which had appeared on his nose the previous evening, but to his great astonishment he saw that instead of his nose, he had a perfectly smooth vacancy in his face. Thoroughly alarmed, he ordered some water to be brought, and rubbed his eyes with a towel. Sure enough, he had no longer a nose. 
Then he sprang out of bed and shook himself violently. No, no nose anymore. He dressed himself and went at once to the police superintendent. But before proceeding further, we must certainly give the reader some information about Kovalov, so that he may know what sort of a man this member of the municipal committee really was. These committee men, who obtain that title by means of certificates of learning, must not be compared with the committee men appointed for the Caucasus district, who are of quite a different kind. The learned committee man, but Russia is such a wonderful country that when one committee man is spoken of, all the others from Riga to Kamchatka refer to it to themselves. The same is also true of all other titled officials. Kovalov had been a Caucasian committee man two years previously, and could not forget that he'd occupied that position. But in order to enhance his own importance, he never called himself committee man, but major. Listen, my dear, he used to say when he met an old woman in the street who sold shirt fronts, go to my house in Sudovia Street and ask, does Major Kovalov live here? Any child can tell you where it is. Accordingly, we will call him for the future Major Kovalov. It was his custom to take a daily walk on the Nevsky Avenue. The collar of his shirt was always remarkably clean and stiff. He wore the same style of whiskers as those that are worn by governors of districts, architects, and regimental doctors. In short, all those who have full red cheeks and play a good game of whist. These whiskers grow straight across the cheek, towards the nose. Major Kovalov wore a number of seals, on some of which were engraved armorial bearings, and others the names of the days of the week. He had come to St. Petersburg with the view of obtaining some position corresponding to his rank, if possible that of vice-governor of a province, but he was prepared to be content with that of a bailiff in some department or other. He was, moreover, not disinclined to marry, but only such a lady who could bring with her a dowry of 200,000 rubles. Accordingly, the reader can judge for himself what his sensations were when he found in his face, instead of a fairly symmetrical nose, a broad, flat vacancy. To increase his misfortune, not a single droshki was to be seen in the street, and so he was obliged to proceed on foot. He wrapped himself up in his cloak and held his handkerchief to his face as though his nose bled. But perhaps it is all only in my imagination. It is impossible that a nose should drop off in such a silly way, he thought, and stepped into a confectioner's shop in order to look into the mirror. Fortunately, no customer was in the shop, only small shop boys were cleaning it out and putting chairs and tables straight. Others with sleepy faces were carrying fresh cakes on trays, and yesterday's newspapers stained with coffee were still lying about. Thank God no one is here, he said to himself. Now I can look at myself leisurely. He stepped gingerly up to a mirror and looked. What an infernal face, he exclaimed and spat with disgust. If there were only something there instead of the nose, but there's absolutely nothing. He bit his lips with vexation, left the confectioners, and resolved, quite contrary to his habit, neither to look nor smile at anyone on the street. Suddenly he halted, as if rooted to the spot before a door, where something extraordinary happened. A carriage drew up at the entrance. The carriage door was opened, and a gentleman in uniform came out and hurried up the steps. 
How great was Kovalov's terror and astonishment when he saw that it was his own nose. At this extraordinary sight, everything seemed to turn around with him. He felt as though he could hardly keep upright on his legs. But, though trembling all over, as though with fever, he resolved to wait till the nose should return to the carriage. After about two minutes, the nose actually came out again. It wore a gold-embroidered uniform with a stiff high collar, trousers of chamois leather, and a sword hung at its side. The hat, adorned with a plume, showed that it held the rank of a state councillor. It was obvious that it was paying duty calls. It looked round on both sides, called to the coachman, drive on, and got into the carriage which drove away. Poor Kovalov nearly lost his reason. He did not know what to think of this extraordinary procedure, and indeed, how was it possible that the nose, which only yesterday he had on his face, and which could neither walk nor drive, should wear a uniform? He ran after the carriage, which fortunately had stopped a short way off before the Grand Bazaar of Moscow. He hurried towards it, and pressed through a crowd of beggar women with their faces bound up, leaving only two openings for the eyes, over whom he had formerly so often made merry. There were only a few people in front of the bazaar. Kovalov was so agitated that he could decide on nothing, and looked for the nose everywhere. At last he saw it standing before a shop. It seemed half buried in its stiff collar, and was attentively inspecting the wares displayed. How can I get at it? thought Kovalov. Everything, the uniform, the hat, and so on, show that it is a state councillor. How the deuce has this happened? He began to cough discreetly near it, but the nose paid him not the least attention. "'Honorable sir,' said Kovalov at last, plucking up courage. "'Honorable sir!' "'What do you want?' asked the nose, and turned around. "'It seems to me strange, most respected sir, you should know where you belong, and I find you all of a sudden... "'Where? Judge yourself.' Pardon me, I do not understand what you are talking about. Explain yourself more distinctly. How shall I make my meaning plainer to him? Then, plucking up fresh courage, he continued. Naturally, besides, I am a major. You must admit it is not befitting that I should go about without a nose. An old apple woman on the Ascension Bridge may carry on her business without one, but since I am on the lookout for a post, besides, in many houses I am acquainted with ladies of high position, Madame Chektaryev, wife of a state councillor, and many others. So you see, I do not know, honorable sir, what you... Here the major shrugged his shoulders. Pardon me. If one regards the matter from the point of view of duty and honor, you will yourself understand... I understand nothing, answered the nose. I repeat, please explain yourself more distinctly. Honorable sir, said Kovalov with dignity. I do not know how I am to understand your words. It seems to me the matter is as clear as possible, or do you wish... But you are, after all, my own nose. The nose looked at the major and wrinkled its forehead. There you are wrong, respected sir. I am myself. Besides, there can be no close relations between us. To judge by the buttons of your uniform, you must be in quite a different department to mine. 
So saying, the nose turned away. Kovalov was completely puzzled. He did not know what to do, and still less what to think. At this moment, he heard the pleasant rustling of a lady's dress, and there approached an elderly lady wearing a quantity of lace, and by her side her graceful daughter in a white dress, which set off her slender figure to advantage, and wearing a light straw hat. Behind the ladies marched a tall lackey with long whiskers. Kovalov advanced a few steps, adjusted his cambric collar, arranged his seals which hung by a little gold chain, and with smiling face fixed his eyes on the graceful lady, who bowed lightly like a spring flower and raised to her brow her little white hand with transparent fingers. He smiled still more when he spied under the brim of her hat her little round chin and part of her cheek faintly tinted with rose color. But suddenly he sprang back as though he had been scorched. He remembered that he had nothing but an absolute blank in place of a nose, and tears started to his eyes. He turned round in order to tell the gentleman in uniform that he was only a state counselor in appearance, but really a scoundrel and a rascal, and nothing else but his own nose. But the nose was no longer there. He had had time to go, doubtless in order to continue his visit. His disappearance plunged Kovalov into despair. He went back and stood for a moment under a colonnade, looking round him on all sides in hope of perceiving the nose somewhere. He remembered very well that it wore a hat with a plume in it and a gold-embroidered uniform, but he had not noticed the shape of the cloak nor the color of the carriages and the horses, nor even whether a lackey stood behind it and, if so, what sort of livery he wore. Moreover, so many carriages were passing that it would have been difficult to recognize one, and even if he had done so, there would have been no means of stopping it. The day was fine and sunny. An immense crowd was passing to and fro on Nevsky Avenue. A variegated stream of ladies flowed along the pavement. There was his acquaintance, the privy councillor, whom he was accustomed to style general, especially when strangers were present. There was Iragin, his intimate friend, who always lost in the evenings at whist, and there another major who had obtained the rank of committee man in the Caucasus, beckoned to him. Go to the deuce, said Kovalov, sotto voce. Hi, coachman, drive me straight to the superintendent of police. So saying, he got into a droshki and continued to shout all the time to the coachman, Drive hard! Is the police superintendent at home? he asked on entering the front hall. No, sir, answered the porter. He has just gone out. Ah, just as I thought. Yes, continued the porter. He has only just gone out. If you had been a moment earlier, you would perhaps have caught him. Kovalov, still holding his handkerchief to his face, re-entered the droshki and cried in a despairing voice, Drive on. Where? asked the coachman. Straight on. But how? There are crossroads here. Shall I go to the right or the left? The question made Kovalov reflect. In his situation, it was necessary to have recourse to the police, not because the affair had anything to do with them directly, but because they acted more promptly than other authorities. As for demanding any explanation from the department to which the nose claimed to belong, it would, he felt, be useless for the answers of that gentleman showed that he regarded nothing as sacred, and he might just as likely have lied in this matter as in saying that he had never seen Kovalov.
but just as he was about to order the coachman to drive to the police station, the idea occurred to him that this rascally scoundrel who, at their first meeting, had behaved so disloyally towards him, might, profiting by the delay, quit the city secretly. And then all his searching would be in vain, or might last over a whole month. Finally, as though visited with a heavenly inspiration, he resolved to go directly to an advertisement office, and to advertise the loss of his nose, giving all its distinctive characteristics in detail, so that anyone who found it might bring it at once to him, or at any rate inform him where it lived. Having decided on this course, he ordered the coachman to drive to the advertisement office, and all the way he continued to punch him in the back. Quick, scoundrel, quick! Yes, sir, answered the coachman, lashing his shaggy horse with the reins. At last they arrived, and Kovalov, out of breath, rushed into a little room where a gray-haired official, in an old coat and with spectacles on his nose, sat at a table holding his pen between his teeth, counting a heap of copper coins. Who takes in the advertisements here? exclaimed Kovalov. At your service, sir, answered the gray-haired functionary, looking up and then fastening his eyes again on the heap of coins before him. I wish to place an advertisement in your paper. Have the kindness to wait a minute, answered the official, putting down figures on paper with one hand, and with the other throwing two balls on his calculating frame. A lackey, whose silver-laced coat showed that he served in one of the houses of the nobility, was standing by the table with a note in his hand, and speaking in a lively tone by way of showing himself sociable. Would you believe it, sir, this little dog is really not worth twenty-four kopecks, and for my own part I would not give a farthing for it, but the countess is quite gone upon it, and offers a hundred roubles reward to anyone who finds it. To tell you the truth, the taste of these people are very different from ours. They don't mind giving five hundred or a thousand roubles for a poodle or a pointer, provided it be a good one. The official listened with a serious air while counting the number of letters contained in the note. At either side of the table stood a number of housekeepers, clerks, and porters carrying notes. The writer of one wished to sell a barouche, which had been brought from Paris in 1814 and had been very little used. Others wanted to dispose of a strong droshki, which wanted one spring, a spirited horse, seventeen years old, and so on. The room where these people were collected was very small, and the air was very close. But Kovalov was not affected by it, for he had covered his face with a handkerchief, and because his nose itself was heaven knew where. "'Sir, allow me to ask you. I am in a great hurry,' he said at last, impatiently. "'In a moment, in a moment. Two roubles, twenty-four kopecks. One minute. One rouble, sixty-four kopecks.' said the gray-haired official, throwing their notes back to the housekeepers and porters. "'What do you wish?' he said, turning to Kovalov. "'I wish,' answered the latter, "'I have just been swindled and cheated, and I cannot get hold of the perpetrator. I only want you to insert an advertisement to say that whoever brings this scoundrel to me will be re well rewarded. "'What is your name, please?' "'Why do you want my name?' I have many lady friends, Madame Chektaryev, wife of a state councillor, Madame Podtochina, wife of a colonel. Heaven forbid that they should get to hear of it. You can simply write committee man, or better, major. And the man who has run away is your serf. Serf? If he was, it would not be such a great swindle. 
It is the nose which has absconded. Hmm, what a strange name. And this Mr. Nose has stolen from you a considerable sum? Mr. Nose, ah, you don't understand me. It is my own nose which is gone. I don't know where. The devil has played a trick on me. How has it disappeared? I don't understand. I can't tell you, but the important point is that now it walks about the city itself, a state councillor. That is why I want you to advertise that whoever gets hold of it should bring it as soon as possible to me. Consider, how can I live without such a prominent part of my body? It is not as if it were merely a little toe. I would only have to put my foot in my boot and no one would notice its absence. Every Thursday, I call on the wife of M. Chektaryev, the state councillor. Madame Podtochina, a colonel's wife, who has a very pretty daughter, is one of my acquaintances, and what am I to do now? I cannot appear before them like this. The official compressed his lips and reflected. No, I cannot insert an advertisement like that, he said after a long pause. What? Why not? Because it might compromise the paper. Suppose everyone could advertise that his nose was lost. People already say that all sorts of nonsense and lies are inserted. But this is not nonsense. There's nothing of that sort in my case. You think so? Listen a minute. Last week there was a case very like it. An official came, just as you have done, bringing an advertisement for the insertion of which he paid two rubles sixty-three kopecks. And this advertisement simply announced the loss of a black-haired poodle. There did not seem to be anything out of the way in it. But it was really a satire. By the poodle was meant the cashier of some establishment or other. But I am not talking of a poodle, but my own nose, that is almost myself. No, I cannot insert your advertisement, but my nose really has disappeared. That is a matter for a doctor. There are said to be people who can provide you with any kind of nose you like. But I see that you are a witty man and like to have your little joke. But I swear to you on my word of honor, look at my face yourself. Why put yourself out? Continued the official, taking a pinch of snuff. All the same, if you don't mind. He added with a touch of curiosity, I should like to have a look at it. The committee man removed the handkerchief from before his face. It certainly does look odd, said the official. It is perfectly flat, like a freshly fried pancake. It is hardly credible. Very well, are you going to hesitate any more? You see, it is impossible to refuse to advertise my loss. I shall be particularly obliged to you, and I shall be glad that this incident has procured me the pleasure of making your acquaintance. The Major, we see, did not even shrink from a slight humiliation. It certainly is not difficult to advertise it, replied the official, but I don't see what good it would do you. However, if you lay so much stress on it, you should apply to someone who has a skillful pen, so that he may describe it as a curious natural freak, and publish the article in the Northern Bee. Here he took another pinch, for the benefit of youthful readers, he wiped his nose, or simply as a matter worthy of arousing public curiosity. The committee man felt completely discouraged. He let his eyes fall absent-mindedly on a daily paper in which theatrical performances were advertised. 
Reading there the name of an actress whom he knew to be pretty, he involuntarily smiled, and his hand sought his pocket to see if he had a blue ticket, for in Kovalov's opinion superior officers like himself should not take a lesser price seat, but the thought of his lost nose suddenly spoiled everything. The official himself seemed touched at his difficult position. Desiring to console him, he tried to express his sympathy by a few polite words. I much regret, he said, your extraordinary mishap. Will you not try a pinch of snuff? It clears the head, banishes depression, and is a good preventive against hemorrhoids. So saying, he reached his snuff box out to Kovalov, skillfully concealing at the same time the cover which was adorned with the portrait of some lady or other. This act, quite innocent in itself, exasperated Kovalov. I don't understand what you find to joke about in the matter, he exclaimed angrily. Don't you see that I lack precisely the essential feature for taking snuff? The devil take your snuff box. I don't want to look at snuff now. Not even the best, certainly not your vile stuff. So saying, he left the advertisement office in a state of profound irritation and went to the commissary of police. He arrived just as his dignitary was reclining on his couch and saying to himself with a sigh of satisfaction, Yes, I shall make a nice little sum out of that. It might be expected, therefore, that the committee man's visit would be quite inopportune. This police commissary was a great patron of all the arts and industries, but what he liked above everything else was a check. It is a thing, he used to say, to which it is not easy to find an equivalent. It requires no food, it does not take up much room, it stays in one's pocket, and if it fails, it is not broken. The commissary accorded Kovalov a fairly frigid reception, saying that the afternoon was not the best time to come with a case, that nature required one to rest a little after eating. This showed the committee man that the commissary was acquainted with the aphorisms of the ancient sages, and that respectable people did not have their noses stolen. The last allusion was too direct. We must remember that Kovalov was a very sensitive man. He did not mind anything said against him as an individual, but he could not endure any reflection on his rank or social position. He even believed that in comedies one might allow attacks on junior officers, but never on their seniors. The commissary's reception of him hurt his feelings so much that he raised his head proudly and said with dignity, After such insulting expressions on your part, I have nothing more to say. And he left the place. He reached his house quite wearied out. It was already growing dark. After all his fruitless search, his room seemed to him melancholy and even ugly. In the vestibule he saw his valet Ivan stretched on the leather couch and amusing himself by spitting at the ceiling, which he did very cleverly, hitting every time the same spot. His servant's equanimity enraged him. He struck him on the forehead with his hat and said, You good for nothing, you are always playing the fool. Ivan rose quickly and hastened to take off his master's cloak. Once in his room, the major, tired and depressed, threw himself in an armchair and, after sighing a while, began to soliloquize. In heaven's name, why should such a misfortune befall me? If I had lost an arm or a leg, it would be less insupportable. But a man without a nose, devil take it, what's he good for? He is only fit to be thrown out of the window. If it had been taken from me in war, or in a duel, or if I had lost it by my own fault, 
but it has disappeared inexplicably. But no, it is impossible. He continued, after reflecting a few moments. It is incredible that a nose can disappear like that, quite incredible. I must be dreaming or suffering from some hallucination. Perhaps I swallowed by mistake, instead of water, the brandy with which I rub my chin after being shaved. That fool of an Ivan must have forgotten to take it away, and I must have swallowed it. In order to find out whether he were really drunk, the Major pinched himself so hard that he involuntarily uttered a cry. The pain convinced him that he was quite wide awake. He walked slowly to the look looking glass, and at first closed his eyes, hoping to see his nose suddenly in its proper place, but on opening them he started back. What a hideous sight, he exclaimed. It was really incomprehensible. One might easily lose a button, a silver spoon, a watch, or something similar, but a loss like this, and in one's own dwelling. After considering all the circumstances, Major Kovalov felt inclined to suppose that the cause of all this trouble should be laid at the door of Madame Podtochina, the colonel's wife, who wished him to marry her daughter. He himself paid her court readily, but always avoided coming to the point. And when the lady one day told him point-blank that she wished him to marry her daughter, he gently drew back, declaring that he was still too young and that he had to serve five more years before he would be forty-two. This must be the reason why the lady, in revenge, had resolved to bring him into disgrace and had hired two sorceresses for that object. One thing was certain, his nose had not been cut off. No one had entered his room, and as for Ivan Yakovlevich, he had been shaved by him on Wednesday, and during that day and the whole of Thursday his nose had been there, as he knew and well remembered. Moreover, if his nose had been cut off, he would naturally have felt pain, and doubtless the wound would not have healed so quickly, nor would the surface have been as flat as a pancake. All kinds of plans passed through his head, should he bring a legal action against the wife of a superior officer, or should he go to her and charge her openly with her treachery? His reflections were interrupted by a sudden light which shone through all the chinks of the door, showing that Ivan had lit the wax candles in the vestibule. Soon Ivan himself came in with the lights. Kovalov quickly seized the handkerchief and covered the place where his nose had been the evening before, so that his blockhead of a servant might not gape with his mouth wide open when he saw his master's extraordinary appearance. Scarcely had Ivan returned to the vestibule than a stranger's voice was heard there. Does Major Kovalov live here? it asked. Come in, said the Major, rising rapidly and opening the door. He saw a police official of pleasant appearance, with gray whiskers and fairly full cheeks the same who at the commencement of this story was standing at the end of the Isaac Bridge. You have lost your nose? he asked. Exactly so. It has just been found. What? Do you say? stammered Major Kovalov. Joy had suddenly paralyzed his tongue. He stared at the police commissary on whose cheeks and full lips fell the flickering light of the candle. How was it? he asked at last. By a very singular chance, it has been arrested just as it was getting into a carriage for Riga. Its passport had been made out some time ago in the name of an official, and what is still more strange, I myself took it at first for a gentleman. 
Fortunately, I had my glasses with me, and then I saw at once that it was a nose. I am short-sighted, you know, and as you stand before me, I cannot distinguish your nose, your beard, or anything else. My mother-in-law can hardly see it all. Kovalov was beside himself with excitement. Where is it? Where? I will hasten there at once. Don't put yourself out. Knowing that you need it, I have brought it with me. Another singular thing is that the principal culprit in the matter is a scoundrel of a barber, living in the Ascension Avenue, who is now safely locked up. I had long suspected him of drunkenness and theft. Only the day before yesterday, he stole some buttons in a shop. Your nose is quite uninjured. So saying, the police commissary put his hand in his pocket and brought out the nose wrapped up in paper. Yes, yes, that is it, exclaimed Kovalov. Will you not stay and drink a cup of tea with me? I should like to very much, but I cannot. I must go at once to the house of correction. The cost of living is very high nowadays. My mother-in-law lives with me, and there are several children. The eldest is very hopeful and intelligent, but I have no means for their education. After the commissary's departure, Kovalov remained for some time plunged in a kind of vague reverie and did not recover full consciousness for several moments. So great was the effect of this unexpected good news. He placed the recovered nose carefully in the palm of his hand and examined it again with the greatest attention. Yes, this is it, he said to himself. Here is the heat boil on the left side which came out yesterday and he nearly laughed aloud with delight. But nothing is permanent in this world. Joy in the second moment of its arrival is already less keen than in the first, is still fainter in the third, and finishes by coalescing with our normal mental state. Just as the circles which the fall of a pebble forms on the surface of water gradually die away. Kovalov began to meditate and saw that his difficulties were not yet over. His nose had been recovered, but it had to be joined on again in its proper place. And suppose it could not? As he put this question to himself, Kovalov grew pale. With a feeling of indescribable dread, he rushed towards his dressing table and stood before the mirror in order that he might not place his nose crookedly. His hands trembled. Very carefully, he placed it where it had been before. Horror! It did not remain there. He held it to his mouth and warmed it a little with his breath and then placed it there again, but it would not hold. Hold on, you stupid, he said. But the nose seemed to be made of wood and fell back on the table with a strange noise. As though it had been a cork, the Major's face began to twitch feverishly. Is it possible that it won't stick? He asked himself, full of alarm. But however often he tried, all his efforts were in vain. He called Ivan and sent him to fetch the doctor who occupied the finest flat in the mansion. This doctor was a man of imposing appearance who had magnificent black whiskers and a healthy wife. He ate fresh apples every morning and cleaned his teeth with extreme care using five different toothbrushes for three-quarters of an hour daily. The doctor came immediately. After having asked the major when this misfortune had happened, he raised his chin and gave him a fillip with his finger, just where the nose had been, in such a way that the major suddenly threw back his head and struck the wall with it.
The doctor said that did not matter. Then, making him turn his face to the right, he felt the vacant place and said, Hmm. Then he made him turn it to the left and did the same. Finally, he again gave him a fillip with his finger, so that the major started like a horse whose teeth are being examined. After this experiment, the doctor shook his head and said, No, it cannot be done. Rather, remain as you are, lest something worse happen. Certainly one could replace it at once, but I assure you the remedy would be worse than the disease. All very fine, but how am I to go on without a nose? answered Kovalov. There is nothing worse than that. How can I show myself with such a villainous appearance? I go into good society, and this evening I am invited to two parties. I know several ladies, Madame Chektaryev, the wife of a state councillor, Madame Podtochina, although after what she has done I don't want to have anything to do with her except through the agency of the police. I beg you, continued Kovalov in a supplicating tone, find some way or other of replacing it, even if it is not quite firm, as long as it holds at all. I can keep it in place sometimes with my hand, whenever there is any risk. Besides, I do not even dance, so that it is not likely to be injured by any sudden movement. As to your fee, be in no anxiety about that. I can well afford it. Believe me, answered the doctor in a voice which was neither too high nor too low, but soft and almost magnetic, I do not treat patients from love of gain. That would be contrary to my principles and to my art. It is true that I accept fees, but that is only not to hurt my patient's feelings by refusing them. I could certainly replace your nose, but I assure you on my word of honor, it would only make matters worse. Rather, let nature do her own work. Wash the place often with cold water, and I assure you that even without a nose, you will be just as well as if you had one. As to the nose itself, I advise you to have it preserved in a bottle of spirits, or still better, of warm vinegar mixed with two spoonfuls of brandy, and then you can sell it at a good price. I would be willing to take it myself, provided you do not ask too much. No, no, I shall not sell it at any price. I would rather it were lost again. Excuse me, said the doctor, taking his leave. I hoped to be useful to you, but I can do nothing more. You are at any rate convinced of my goodwill. So saying, the doctor left the room with a dignified air. Kovalov did not even notice his departure. Absorbed in a profound reverie, he only saw the edge of his snow-white cuffs emerging from the sleeves of his black coat. The next day he resolved, before bringing a formal action, to write to the colonel's wife and see whether she would not return to him without further dispute that of which she had deprived him. The letter ran as follows. To Madame Alexandra Podtochina, I hardly understand your method of action. Be sure that by adopting such a course you will gain nothing, and will certainly not succeed in making me marry your daughter. Believe me, the story of my nose has become well known. It is you and no one else who have taken the principal part in it, its unexpected separation from the place which it occupied, its flight, and its appearances sometimes in the disguise of an official, sometimes in proper person, are nothing but the consequence of unholy spells employed by you or by persons who, like you, are addicted to such honorable pursuits. On my part, I wish to inform you that if the above-mentioned nose 
is not restored today to its proper place, I shall be obliged to have recourse to legal procedure. For the rest, with all respect, I have the honor to be your humble servant, Platon Kovalov. The reply was not long in coming and was as follows. Major Platon Kovalov, your letter has profoundly astonished me. I must confess that I had not expected such unjust reproaches on your part. I assure you that the official of whom you speak has not been at my house, either disguised or in his proper person. It is true that Philippe Ivanovich Potanchikov has paid visits at my house, and though he has actually asked for my daughter's hand and was a man of good breeding, respectable and intelligent, I never gave him any hope. Again, you say something about a nose. If you intend to imply by that that I wish to snub you, that is, to meet you with a refusal, I am very astonished because, as you well know, I was quite of the opposite mind. If after this you wish to ask for my daughter's hand, I should be glad to gratify you, for such has also been the object of my most fervent desire, in the hope of the accomplishment of which I remain yours most sincerely, Alexandra Podtochina. No, said Kovalov, after having re-perused the letter. She is certainly not guilty. It is impossible. Such a letter could not be written by a criminal. The committee man was experienced in such matters, for he had been often officially deputed to conduct criminal investigations while in the Caucasus. But then how and by what trick of fate has the thing happened? He said to himself with a gesture of discouragement. The devil must be at the bottom of it. Meanwhile, the rumor of this extraordinary event had spread all over the city, and, as is generally the case, not without numerous additions. At that period there was a general disposition to believe in the miraculous. The public had recently been impressed by experiments in magnetism. The story of the floating chairs in Konyu Chinaya Street was still quite recent, and there was nothing astonishing in hearing soon afterwards that Major Kovalov's nose was to be seen walking every day at three o'clock on the Nevsky Avenue. The crowd of curious spectators which gathered there daily was enormous. On one occasion someone spread a report that the nose was in Junker's stores, and immediately the place was besieged by such a crowd that the police had to interfere and establish order. A certain speculator with a grave whiskered face who sold cakes at a theater door had some strong wooden benches made which he placed before the window of the stores and obligingly invited the public to stand on them and look in at the modest charge of 24 kopecks. A veteran colonel, leaving his house earlier than usual expressly for the purpose, had the greatest difficulty in elbowing his way through the crowd, but to his great indignation he saw nothing in the store window but an ordinary flannel waistcoat and a colored lithograph representing a young girl darning a stocking, while an elegant youth in a waistcoat with large lapels watched her from behind a tree. The picture had hung in the same place for more than ten years. The colonel went off, growling savagely to himself, How can the fools let themselves be excited by such idiotic stories? Then another rumor got abroad to the effect that the nose of Major Kovalov was in the habit of walking not on the Nevsky Avenue, but in the Taurus Gardens. Some students of the Academy of Surgery went there on purpose to see it. 
A high-born lady wrote to the keeper of the gardens asking him to show her children this rare phenomenon and to give them some suitable instruction on the occasion. All these incidents were eagerly collected by the town wits, who just then were very short of anecdotes adapted to amuse ladies. On the other hand, the minority of solid, sober people were very much displeased. One gentleman asserted with great indignation that he could not understand how, in our enlightened age, such absurdities could spread abroad, and he was astonished that the government did not direct their attention to the matter. This gentleman evidently belonged to the category of those people who wished the government to interfere in everything, even in their daily quarrels with their wives. But here the course of events is again obscured by a veil. 3. Strange events happen in this world, events which are sometimes entirely improbable. The same nose which had masqueraded as a state councillor and caused so much sensation in the town was found one morning in its proper place, that is, between the cheeks of Major Kovalov, as if nothing had happened. This occurred on April 7th. On awaking, the Major looked by chance into a mirror and perceived a nose. He quickly put his hand to it. It was there beyond a doubt. Oh! exclaimed Kovalov. For sheer joy, he was on the point of performing a dance barefooted across his room, but the entrance of Ivan prevented him. He told him to bring water, and after washing himself, he looked again in the glass. The nose was there. Then he dried his face with a towel and looked again. Yes, there was no mistake about it. Look here, Ivan, it seems to me that I have a heat boil on my nose, he said to his valet, and he thought to himself at the same time, that will be a nice business if Ivan says to me, no, sir, not only is there no boil, but your nose itself is not there. But Ivan answered, there's nothing, sir, I can see no boil on your nose. Good, good, exclaimed the major and snapped his fingers with delight. At this moment, the barber, Ivan Yakovlevich, put his head in at the door, but as timidly as a cat, which has just been beaten for stealing lard. Tell me first, are your hands clean? asked Kovalov when he saw him. Yes, sir. You lie. I swear they're perfectly clean, sir. Very well, then come here. Kovalov seated himself. Yakovlevich tied a napkin under his chin and in the twinkling of an eye covered his beard and part of his cheeks with a copious creamy lather. There it is, said the barber to himself as he glanced at the nose. Then he bent his head a little and examined it from one side. Yes, it actually is the nose. Really, when one thinks, he continued pursuing his mental soliloquy and still looking at it. Then quite gently, with infinite precaution, he raised two fingers in the air in order to take hold of it by the extremity, as he was accustomed to do. Now then, take care, Kovalov exclaimed. Ivan Yakovlevich let his arm fall and felt more embarrassed than he had ever done in his life. At last he began to pass the razor very lightly over the major's chin, and although it was very difficult to shave him without using the olfactory organ as a point of support, he succeeded, however, by placing his wrinkled thumb against the Major's lower jaw and cheek. 
thus overcoming all obstacles and bringing his task to a safe conclusion. When the barber had finished, Kovalov hastened to dress himself, took a droshki, and drove straight to the confectioner's. As he entered it, he ordered a cup of chocolate. He then stepped straight to the mirror. The nose was there. He returned joyfully and regarded with a satirical expression two officers who were in the shop, one of whom possessed a nose not much larger than a waistcoat button. After that, he went to the office of the department where he had applied for the post of vice governor of a province of government bailiff. As he passed through the hall of reception, he cast a glance at the mirror. The nose was there. Then he went to pay a visit to another committee man, a very sarcastic personage, to whom he was accustomed to say, in answer to his raillery, Yes, I know, you're the funniest fellow in St. Petersburg. On the way, he said to himself, If the major does not burst into laughter at the sight of me, that is a most certain sign that everything is in its accustomed place. But the major said nothing. Very good, thought Kovalov. As he returned, he met Madame Potocina with her daughter. He accosted them, and they responded very graciously. The conversation lasted a long time, during which he took more than one pinch of snuff, saying to himself, No, you haven't caught me yet, coquette that you are, and as to the daughter, I shan't marry her at all. After that, the Major resumed his walks on the Nevsky Avenue, and his visits to the theater, as if nothing had happened. His nose also remained in its place, as if it had never quitted it. From that time, he was always to be seen smiling, in a good humor, and paying attention to pretty girls. 4. Such was the occurrence which took place in the northern capital of our vast empire. On considering the account carefully, we see that there is a good deal which looks improbable about it not to speak of the strange disappearance of the nose, and its appearance in different places under the disguise of a counselor of state, how was it that Kovalov did not understand that one cannot decently advertise for a lost nose? I do not mean to say that he would have had to pay too much for the advertisement, that's a mere trifle, and I am not one of those who attach too much importance to money, but to advertise in such a case is not proper nor befitting. Another difficulty is, how was the nose found in the baked loaf, and how did Ivan Yakovlevich himself... No, I don't understand it at all. But the most incomprehensible thing of all is how authors can choose such subjects for their stories. That really surpasses my understanding. In the first place, no advantage results from it for the country, and in the second place, no harm results either. All the same, when one reflects well, there really is something in the matter. Whatever may be said to the contrary, such cases do occur. Rarely, it is true, but now and then, actually. The End This has been a reading of The Nose by Nikolai Gogol, translated by Claude Field. Read for LibriVox.org by Philip Cryan in St. Paul, Minnesota. Act Two of the Inspector General by Nikolai Gogol. Translated by Thomas Seltzer. 
Act 2. A small room in the inn. Bed, table, travelling bag, empty bottle, boots, clothes brush, etc. Scene 1. Osip, lying on his master's bed. The devil take it. I'm so hungry. There's a racket in my belly, as if a whole regiment were blowing trumpets. We'll never reach home. I'd like to know what we are going to do. Two months already since we left St. Pete's. He's gone through all his cash, the precious buck. So now he sticks here with his tail between his legs and takes it easy. We have had enough and more than enough to pay for the fare. But no, he must exhibit himself in every town. Imitates him. Ossip, get me the best room to be had and order the best dinner they serve. I can't stand bad food. I must have the best. It would be all right for somebody, but for a common copying clerk. Goes and gets acquainted with the other travellers, plays cards, and plays himself out of his last penny. Oh, I'm sick of this life. It's better in our village, really. There isn't so much going on, but then there is less to bother about. You get yourself a wife and lie on the stove all the time and eat pie. Of course, if you wanted to tell the truth, there's no denying that there's nothing like living in St. Pete. All you want is money, and then you can live smart and classy. Theatres, dogs to dance for you, everything. And everybody talks so genteel, pretty near like in high society. If you go to the Shook in Bazaar, the shopkeepers cry, Gentlemen, at you. You sit with the officials in the ferry boat. If you want company, you go into a shop. A sport there will tell you about life in the barracks and explain the meaning of every star in the sky so that you see them all as if you held them in your hand. Then an old officer's wife will gossip or a pretty chambermaid will dart a look at you. Ta, ta, ta. Smirks and wags his head. And what deucedly civil manners they have too. You never hear no impolite language. They always say, Mister, to you. If you are tired of walking, why, you take a cab and sit in it like a lord. And if you don't feel like paying, then you don't. Every house has an open-work gate and you can slip through and the devil himself won't catch you. There's one bad thing, though. Sometimes you get first-class eats and sometimes you're so starved you nearly drop like now it's all his fault what can you do with him his dad sends him money to keep him going but the devil a lot it does he goes off on a spree rides in cabs gets me to buy a theater ticket for him every day and in a week look at him sends me to the old clothes man to sell his new dress coat sometimes he gets rid of everything down to his last shirt and is left with nothing except his coat and overcoat. Upon my word, it's the truth. And such fine cloth, too. English, you know. One dress coat costs him a hundred and fifty roubles, 
and he sells it to the old clothes man for 20. No use saying nothing about his pants, they go for a song. And why? Because he doesn't tend to his business. Instead of sticking to his job, he gads about on the prospect and plays cards. Oh, if the old gentleman only knew it. He wouldn't care that you're an official. He'd lift up your little shirty and would lay it on so that you'd go about rubbing yourself for a week. If you have a job, stick to it. Here's the innkeeper says he won't let you have anything to eat unless you pay your back bills. Well, and suppose we don't pay. Sighing. Oh, oh good God. If only I could get cabbage soup. I think I could eat up the whole world now. There's a knock at the door. I suppose it's him. Rises from the bed hastily. Scene two. Osip and Hlistakov. Here. Hands him his cap and cane. What? Been warming the bed again? Why should I have been warming the bed? Have I never seen a bed before? You're lying. The bed's all tumbled up. What do I want a bed for? Don't I know what a bed is like? I have legs and can use them to stand on. I don't need your bed. Klistakov, walking up and down the room. Go and see if there isn't some tobacco in the pouch. What tobacco? You emptied it out four days ago. Klistakov, pacing the room and twisting his lips. Finally, he says in a loud, resolute voice, Listen, uh, Osip. Yes, sir. Klistakov, in a voice just as loud, but not quite so resolute. Go down there. Where? Klistakov, in a voice not at all resolute, nor loud, but almost in entreaty. Down to the restaurant. Tell them to send up dinner. No, I won't. How dare you, you fool? It won't do any good, anyhow. The landlord said he won't let you have anything more to eat. How dare he? What nonsense is this? He'll go to the governor, too, he says. It's two weeks now since you paid him, he says. You and your master are cheats, he says. And your master is a blackleg, besides, he says. We know the breed. We've seen swindlers like him before. And you're delighted, I suppose, to repeat all this to me, you donkey. Every Tom, Dick and Harry comes and lives here, he says, and runs up debts so that you can't even put him out. I'm not going to fool about it, he says. I'm going straight to the governor and have him arrested and put in jail. That'll do now, you fool. Go down at once and tell them to have dinner sent up. A coarse brute, the idea. Hadn't I better call the landlord here? What do I want the landlord for? Go and tell him yourself. But really, master. Well, go, the deuce take you. Call the landlord. Osip goes out. Scene three. Klistakov, alone. I am so ravenously hungry. 
I took a little stroll, thinking I could walk off my appetite, but hang it, it clings. If I hadn't dissipated so in Penza, I'd have had enough money to get home with. The infantry captain did me up all right. Wonderful the way the scoundrel cut the cards. Didn't take more than a quarter of an hour for him to clean me out of my last penny. And yet, I would give anything to have another set to with him. Only I never will have the chance. What a rotten town this is. You can't get anything on credit in the grocery shops here. It's deucedly mean it is. He whistles. First an air from Robert Le Diable. Then a popular song. Then a blend of the two. No one's coming. Scene four. Listakov. Osip and a servant. The landlord sent me up to ask what you want. Ah, how do you do, brother? How are you? How are you? All right, thank you. And how are you getting on in the inn? Is business good? Yes, business is all right, thank you. Uh, many guests? Plenty. See here, good friend. They haven't sent me dinner yet. Please hurry them up. See that I get it as soon as possible. I have some business to attend to immediately after dinner. The landlord said he won't let you have anything more. He was all for going to the governor today and making a complaint against you. What's there to complain about? Judge for yourself, friend. Why, I've got to eat. If I go on like this, I'll turn into a skeleton. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm not joking. Yes, sir. That's what he said. I won't let him have no dinner, he said, till he pays for what he has already had. That was his answer. Try to persuade him. But what shall I tell him? Explain that it's a serious matter I've got to eat. As for the money, of course, he thinks that because a mujik like him can go without food a whole day, others can too. The idea. Well, all right, I'll tell him. The servant and Osip go out. Scene 5. Listakov. Alone. A bad business if he refuses to let me have anything. I'm so hungry. I've never been so hungry in my life. Shall I try to raise something on my clothes? Shall I sell my trousers? No, I'd, I'd rather starve than come home without a St. Petersburg suit. It's a shame Joachim wouldn't let me have a carriage on hire. It would have been great to ride home in a carriage, drive up under the porte cochere of one of the neighbors with lamps lighted and no sip behind in livery. Imagine the stir it would have created. Who is it? What's that? Then my footman walks in, draws himself up and imitates, and announces, Ivan Alexandrovich Klishtakov of St. Petersburg. Will you receive him? Those country lovers don't even know what it means to receive. If any lout of a country squire pays them a visit, he stalks straight into the drawing room like a bear. Then you step up to one of their pretty girls and say, Delighted, madam. Rubs his hands and bows. Phew. Spits. I feel positively sick I'm so hungry. Scene 6. Klistakov. Osip, and later the servant. Well? 
They're bringing dinner. Lister Cole claps his hands and wriggles in his chair. <laughs> dinner, dinner, dinner. Servant with plates and napkin. This is the last time the landlord will let you have dinner. The landlord, the landlord, I spit on your landlord. What have you got there? Soup and roast beef. What? Only two courses? That's all. Nonsense, I won't take it. What does he mean by that? Ask him, it's not enough. The landlord says it's too much. Why is there no sauce? There is none. Why not? I saw them preparing a whole lot when I passed through the kitchen. And in the dining room this morning, two short little men were eating salmon and lots of other things. Well, you see, there is some and there isn't. Why isn't? Because there isn't any. What, no salmon, no fish, no cutlets? Only for the better kind of folk. You're a fool. Yes, sir. You measly suckling pig, why can they eat and I not? Why the devil can't I eat too? Am I not a guest the same as they? No, not the same. That's plain. How so? That's easy. They pay. That's it. I'm not going to argue with you, simpleton. Ladles out the soup and begins to eat. What? You call that soup? Simply hot water poured into a cup. No taste to it at all. It only stinks. I don't want it. Bring me some other soup. All right. I'll take it away. The boss said if you didn't want it, you needn't take it. Listercall, putting his hand over the dishes. Well, well, leave it alone, you fool. You may be used to treating other people this way, but I'm not that sort. I advise you not to try it on me. My God, what soup. Goes on eating. I don't think anybody in the world tasted such soup. Feathers floating on the top instead of butter. Cuts the piece of chicken in the soup. Oh, 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 what a bird. Give me the roast beef. There's a little soup left, Osip, take it. Cuts the meat. What sort of roast beef is this? This isn't roast beef. What else is it? The devil knows, but it isn't roast beef. It's roast iron, not roast beef. Eats. Scoundrels. Crooks the stuff they give you to eat. It makes your jaws ache to chew one piece of it. Picks his teeth with his fingers. Villains. It's as tough as the bark of a tree. I can't pull it out no matter how hard I try. Such meat is enough to ruin one's teeth. Crooks. Wipes his mouth with the napkin. Is there nothing else? No. Scoundrels, blackguards, they might have given some decent pastry or something, the lazy good-for-nothings. Fleecing their guests, that's all they're good for. The servant takes the dishes and carries them out, accompanied by Osip. Scene 7. Lestikov alone. It's just as if I'd eaten nothing at all, upon my word. It has only whetted my appetite. If I only had some change to send to the market and buy some bread. Osip entering. The governor has come. I don't know what for. He's inquiring about you. Listicle, in alarm. There now, that innkeeper has gone and made a complaint against me. Suppose he really claps me into jail. Well, if he does it in a gentlemanly way, I may... No, no, I won't. The officers and the people are all out on the street and I set the fashion for them and the merchant's daughter and I flirted. No, I won't. And pray, who is he? How dare he, actually? What does he take me for? A tradesman? I'll tell him straight out. How dare you? How... 
The doorknob turns, and Holestikov goes pale and shrinks back. Scene 8. Holestikov. The governor and Dobchinsky. The governor advances a few steps and stops. They stare at each other a few moments, wide-eyed and frightened. Governor, recovering himself a little and saluting military fashion. I have come to present my compliments, sir. Holestikov. Bows. How do you do, sir? Excuse my intruding. Pray don't mention it. It's my duty, as chief magistrate of this town, to see that visitors and persons of rank should suffer no inconveniences. Hlistakov. A little halting at first, but toward the end in a loud, firm voice. Well, what was to be done? It's not... My fault. I'm, I'm really going to pay. They will send me money from home. Bobchinsky peeps in at the door. He's most to blame. He gives me beef as hard as a board, and the soup. The devil knows what he put into it. I ought to have pitched it out of the window. He starves me the whole day. His tea is so peculiar, it smells of fish, not tea. So why should I... The idea. Governor, scared. Excuse me. I assure you, it's not my fault. I always have good beef in the market here. The Komogri merchants bring it, and they are sober, well-behaved people. I'm sure I don't know where he gets his bad meat from. But if anything is wrong, may I suggest that you allow me to take you to another place? No, I thank you. We don't care to leave. I know what the other place is, the jail. What right have you, I should like to know? How dare you? Why, I'm in the government service at St. Petersburg. Puts on a bold front. I, I, I... Governor, aside. My God, how angry he is. He has found out everything. Those damned merchants have told him everything. Hlistakov, with bravado. I won't go even if you come here with their whole force. I'll go straight to the minister. Bangs his fist on the table. What do you mean? What do you mean? Governor, drawing himself up stiffly and shaking all over. Have pity on me. Don't ruin me. I have a wife and little children. Don't bring misfortune on a man. No, I won't go. What's that got to do with me? Must I go to jail because you have a wife and little children? Great. Bobchinsky looks in at the door and disappears in terror. No, much obliged to you. I will not go. Governor, trembling. It was my inexperience. I swear to you, it was nothing but my inexperience and insufficient means. Judge for yourself. The salary I get is not enough for tea and sugar. And if I have taken bribes, they were mere trifles, something for the table or a coat or two. As for the officer's widow to whom they say I gave a beating, she's in business now. And it's a slander, it's a slander that I beat her. Those scoundrels here invented the lie. They are ready to murder me. That's the kind of people they are. Well, I've nothing to do with them. Reflecting. I don't see, though, why you should talk to me about your scoundrels or officer's widow. An officer's widow is quite a different matter. But don't you dare to beat me. You can't do it to me. No, sir, you can't. The idea. Look at him. I'll pay. I'll pay the money. Just now I'm out of cash. That's why I stay here because I haven't a single coping. Governor, aside. 
Oh, he's a shrewd one. So that's what he's aiming at. He's raised such a cloud of dust, you can't tell what direction he's going. Who can tell what he wants? One doesn't know where to begin. But I will try. Come what may, I'll try. Hit or miss. Aloud. Hmm. If you really are in want of money, I'm ready to serve you. It is my duty to assist strangers in town. Uh, lend me some, lend me some. Then I'll settle up immediately with the landlord. I only want 200 rubles, even less would do. There's just 200 rubles. Giving him the money. Don't bother to count it. Listicle. Taking it. Very much obliged to you. I'll send it back to you as soon as I get home. I just suddenly found myself without... I see you are a gentleman. <laughs> now it's all different. Governor, aside. Well, thank the Lord. He's taken the money. Now I suppose things will move along smoothly. I slipped four hundred instead of two into his hand. Oh, Osip. Osip enters. Tell the servant to come. To the Governor and Dobchinsky. Please be seated. To Dobchinsky. Please, take a seat, I beg of you. Don't trouble, we can stand. But please, please be seated. I now see perfectly how open-hearted and generous you are. I confess I thought you would come to put me... To Dobchinsky. Do take a chair. The Governor and Dobchinsky sit down. Dobchinsky looks in at the door and listens. Governor, aside. I must be bolder. He wants us to pretend he is incognito. Very well. We will talk nonsense too. We'll pretend we haven't the least idea who he is. Aloud. I was going about in the performance of my duty with Pyotr Ivanovich Dobchinsky here. He's a landed proprietor here. And we came to the inn to see whether the guests are properly accommodated. Because I'm not like other governors who don't care about anything. No, apart from my duty, out of pure Christian philanthropy, I wish every mortal to be decently treated. And as if to reward me for my pains, chance has afforded me this pleasant acquaintance. I too am delighted. Without your aid, I confess, I should have had to stay here a long time. I didn't know how in the world to pay my bill. Governor, aside. Oh yes, fib on. Didn't know how to pay his bill. May I ask where your honor is going? I'm going to my own village in the government of Saratov. Governor, aside, with an ironical expression on his face. The government of Saratov? Hmm, hmm, and doesn't even blush. One must be on the qui vive with this fellow. Aloud. You have undertaken a great task. They say traveling is disagreeable because of the delay in getting horses. But, on the other hand, it is a diversion. You are traveling for your own amusement, I suppose? Uh, no, my father wants me. He's angry because so far I haven't made headway in the St. Petersburg service. He thinks they stick the Vladimir in your buttonhole the minute you get there. I'd like him to knock about in the government offices for a while. Governor, aside. How he fabricates! Dragging in his old father, too. Aloud. And may I ask whether you are going there to stay for long? Uh, I really don't know. You see, my father is stubborn and stupid, an old dotard as hard as a block of wood. I'll tell him straight out, do what you will, I can't live away from St. Petersburg. 
Really, why I should waste my life among peasants? Our times make different demands on us. My soul craves enlightenment. Governor, aside. He can spin yarns all right. Lie after lie and never trips. And such an ugly, insignificant-looking creature, too. Why, it seems to me I could crush him with my fingernails. But wait, I'll make you talk. I'll make you tell me things. Aloud. You were quite right in your observation that one can do nothing in a dreary, out-of-the-way place. Take this town, for instance. You lie awake nights, you work hard for your country, you don't spare yourself. And the reward? You don't know when it's coming. He looks round the room. This room seems rather damp. Yes, it's a dirty room. And the bugs. I've never experienced anything like them. They bite like dogs. You don't say. An illustrious guest like you? To be subjected to such annoyance at the hands of whom? Of vile bugs that should never have been born? And I dare say it's dark here, too. Yes, very gloomy. The landlord has introduced the custom of not providing candles. Sometimes I want to do something, read a bit, or if the fancy strikes me, write something. I can't. It's a dark room, yes, very dark. I wondered if I might be bold enough to ask you... But, but no, I'm unworthy. What is it? No, no, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. But what is it? If I might be bold enough? I have a fine room for you at home. Light and cozy. But no, I feel it too great an honor. Don't be offended. Upon my word, I made the offer out of the simplicity of my heart. On the contrary, I accept your invitation with pleasure. I should feel much more comfortable in a private house than in this disreputable tavern. I'm only too delighted. How glad my wife will be. It's my character, you know. I've always been hospitable from my very childhood, especially when my guest is a distinguished person. Don't think I say this out of flattery. No, I haven't that vice. I only speak from the fullness of my heart. I'm greatly obliged to you. I myself hate double-faced people. I like your candor and kind-heartedness exceedingly, and I am free to say I ask for nothing else than devotion and esteem, esteem and devotion. Scene 9. The above and the servant, accompanied by Osip. Bobchinsky peeps in at the door. Did your honor wish anything? Yes, let me have the bill. I gave you the second one a little while ago. Oh, I can't remember your stupid accounts. Tell me what the whole comes to. You were pleased to order dinner the first day. The second day you took only salmon. And then you took everything on credit. Fool. Starts to count it all up now. How much is it altogether? Please don't trouble yourself. He can wait. To the servant. Get out of here. The money will be sent to you. Yes, that's so, of course. He puts the money in his pocket. The servant goes out. Bobchinsky peeps in at the door. Scene 10. The governor, Klistakov, and Dobchinsky. Would you care to inspect a few institutions in our town now? The philanthropic institutions, for instance, and others. But what is there to see? Well, 
You'll see how they're run, the order in which we keep them. Oh, with the greatest pleasure. I'm ready. Bobchinsky puts his head in at the door. And then, if you wish, we can go from there and inspect the district school and see our method of education. Yes, yes, if you please. Afterwards, if you should like to visit our town jails and prisons, you will see how our criminals are kept. Yes, yes. But why go to prison? We'd better go to see the philanthropic institutions. As you please. Do you wish to ride in your own carriage, or with me in the cab? I'd rather take the cab with you. Governor, to Dobchinsky. Now there'll be no room for you, Peter Ivanovich. It doesn't matter. I'll walk. Governor, aside to Dobchinsky. Listen, run as fast as you can and take two notes. One to Zemlenika at the hospital, the other to my wife. To Lestikov. May I take the liberty of asking you to permit me to write a line to my wife to tell her to make ready to receive our honored guest? Why go to so much trouble? Uh, however, there's the ink. I don't know whether there is any paper. Would the bill do? Yes, that'll do. Writes, talking to himself at the same time. We'll see how things will go after lunch and several stout-bellied bottles. We have some Russian Madeira, not much to look at, but it will knock an elephant off its legs. If I only knew what he is and how much I have to be on my guard. He finishes writing and gives the notes to Dobchinsky. As the latter walks across the stage, the door suddenly falls in and Bobchinsky tumbles in with it to the floor. All exclaim in surprise. Bobchinsky rises. Have you hurt yourself? Oh, it's nothing. Nothing at all. Only a little bruise on my nose. I'll run into Dr. Hebner's. He has a sort of plaster. It'll soon pass away. Governor, making an angry gesture at Bobchinsky. To Hlestikov. Oh, it's nothing. Now, if you please, sir, we'll go. I'll tell your servant to carry your luggage over. Call Zosip. Here, my good fellow. Take all your master's things to my house, the governor's. Anyone will tell you where it is. By your leave, sir. Makes way for Hlestikov and follows him. Then turns and says reprovingly to Bobchinsky. Couldn't you find some other place to fall in? Sprawling out here like a lobster. Goes out. After him, Bobchinsky. Curtain falls. End of Act Two